Welcome to Predicting People, hosted by Professor Nick Chater and Dr. Henry Stott, the co-founders of DeckTech. Predicting People explores current events and their commercial implications through the lens of behavioral science. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Predicting People with me, Nick Chater. And uh, me, Henry Stott. And on this episode, we are going to be talking about trust. It's kind of hard to define trust, but when it breaks down, you know about it. So I think recent examples would be the run on the pound precipitated by Liz Truss's mini budget, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, those kinds of things, where suddenly an institution doesn't have the trust that it needs in order to continue to function. But of course, there is a massive academic literature on this to start with, which we will not do justice to in the time we have available, I don't doubt. You're familiar with this uh, literature in its sprawling form. How is the academic side of trust defined, in effect? Very good question, Henry, because it is sprawling, but it is very central. So the idea, I think, that um, political scientists and sociologists have about trust is that it's essentially the, the medium through which social interactions and economic interactions can happen smoothly. So if trust starts to break down, then almost every interaction between people whether it's a trading interaction where you're buying or selling something or putting money in your bank or just you know, getting along together and making an agreement and you know, arriving at the same time at the restaurant and so on, all of these things start to collapse. So there's a lot of interest in the general levels of trust in society and their wider impact. So a very famous book, for example, by Harvard's uh, Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone, which is looking at the decline of social interconnections and trust in the US over a period of decades. And there what he's looking at is how when you have decreasing numbers of people in organizations, for example, churches, sports clubs, school-related after-school activities, all of these things that get people together just to do stuff together, those are things that foster trust, foster a sense of community, and allow people to think, well, of course, you're going, I, I can trust you and you can trust me because we're kind of going to bump into each other, as it were, at the, at the church on Sunday. But when you have a more atomized society, and this is the bowling alone uh, title, is an atomized society where people are in, doing their own thing, then those links of trust can start to break down. Many people have argued that those links of trust that hold society together are very important from a purely economic point of view, and for many others. So Francis Fukuyama, particularly a famous political scientist, has a book going back nearly 30 years now on trust, where he's arguing that the economic success of different parts of the world to a fairly strong degree determined by the level of trust that, that you, you have. So the societies in which trust is very low... Uh, you're forced, essentially, to work with people in your own family or people you've worked with for years, and anyone outside your network is treated with suspicion. And that makes it very hard to do you know, almost any complicated economic activity. So, so if, for example, there's a lot of study of the different parts of Italy, the, the north versus the south, for example, where trust in general is very much lower in the south of Italy. That is aligned with much lower economic developments. The issue is a big one. It's probably very fundamental to the success of, of Western societies that we actually we do, despite everything, despite the, our sense of, of scepticism and, and doubt about our fellow human, actually we, we live in very high-trust societies historically and indeed looking across the world. So you've got this society-level benefit of having trust facilitating commerce, facilitating people's well-being, but then there's a more atomic version of that in the form of the games literature. 
Yeah, absolutely. So there are two games that are particularly worth highlighting. So this games literature is a literature where you put people in labs and they play a little stylized imaginary game. In fact, with, with real money. And you look at the way they pave in that context. And the idea is that those games are specially designed to tell you something about, in this case, trust. So one game is called the trust game. The clue is in the name. Absolutely. I have some money. Not very much, maybe a couple of pounds. I then give you that money. But when I give it to you, it triples in value or it goes up by some multiple. So now it's six pounds. And then what are you going to do? You can give some money back to me. But you don't have to. You can just walk away. So the idea of this game is to give a, an index of how trusting I am in you. So if I totally trust you, I'm going to think, well, I'll just give you my whole two pounds. And then you're going to split the six, three, three. And then we're both better off. That's great. Everyone's a winner. But on the other hand, if I don't trust you, I might think, well, I'm going to give you my two pounds. You're going to turn it into six pounds and walk away with it. And I've got nothing. So how much money am I going to give you? And of course, you can see the economic analogue here that in a, in a high trust world, we're able to trust each other with our, as it were, in this case, our two pounds. And that leads to you know, successful investment and you know, joint projects which work. But in a world where I don't trust, I just hoard my two pounds and, and no profit is made. So that's the trust game. And another very interesting game is the ultimatum game. And this is a game where I have a pile of money, usually quite a small pile, say my two pounds, and I give you some of that money as an offer. I say you can have a pound or 10p or whatever you like. And you either say no or yes. And if you say that's outrageous, no, then not only do you not take that money, but I don't get any money either. The money just evaporates. So it's like we have a kind of a fight, as it were. On the other hand, you might just accept my offer. So in a high trust world... We make each other offers and we're happy with them and we, we kind of just get on with life. In a low-trust world, I make you an offer and you think it's an outrage and then we basically have a fight and everybody's worse off. So that's a bad world. And the ultimatum game has been done with really large amounts of money too. So it's normally done in the lab with small amounts. But people have done ultimatum games with things which are you know, sort of several times monthly income in quite low-income countries. The general story is that people mostly give about half. Um, if you give up to 30%, people tend to accept but actually, it varies a lot between cultures and it varies a lot between individuals. So this would be very surprising because, in principle, I should just propose one pence to, uh, you know, let's say we're dealing with £10. I should do £9.99 for myself and one P for you and you would accept that because you're a penny better off. Uh, whereas uh, you're saying that, in fact, if I offer you less than £3, then typically someone will just turn around and go, no way. Even though there are versions of the experiment where people don't know each other and... You know, there's no obvious interconnectedness. Uh, people will take this retaliatory punishment step of refusing the money and thereby stopping the other person getting any money. Yeah, and this is really weird because you'd think if people are real sort of hardcore economists, they should just say, well, more money is better than no money. So you know, if you offer me a penny, I'll take it. Uh, but as you say, they don't do that. As it were, pride or that sense of being badly treated is overwhelms the, the money and you just can't bear to accept a low offer. There's a lovely paper, which is decently old at this point as well, aren't we all, that uh, was written by a guy called John Carter with uh, Michael Irons about how, well, in effect, how economists were ruining the world. Um, and so they played ultimatum games with different people and figured out which industries the different people worked in and then reported the average ultimatum proposal from those people. So as you were saying earlier, Typically, people offer about £4 on a £10 split, and that gets accepted. But the uh, people who worked in charities and retail and so forth tended to offer more. Hospitality industries, the food and drink industries, these people, people who are used to tipping and so forth, they were offering £5, not £4. 
And interestingly, it was the banks and the insurance employees and people working in utilities who were all offering the four pounds or lower. There's something there about how there's different cultures in different industries, and some of them are, in effect, more trusting, more altruistic behavior than uh, in others. That sort of resonates with work that we had done with a brand personality tracking study that we ran for a number of years. So we had studied the responses of thousands of people and their perceptions of different retail brands in the UK to figure out which ones uh, had which personality. And the kind of personality dimensions we were looking at were how luxurious those brands were or how innovative those brands were, but also how honest those brands were. And <laughs> sure enough, in line with the ultimatum game work, you find that the institutions that people trust tend to be people they interact with quite a lot, John Lewis, Marks and Spencers, Boots, those kinds of places. Uh, and then the ones that they don't trust at all tend to be more the ones that don't have those cultures. So a variety of banks came bottom of this list of 100, as did various uh, utilities, energy companies. You see, I'm studiously avoiding naming people here. You can imagine. And interestingly, also political parties. So that sort of gives you some sense as to like, who we trust and to some degree why that is. There's also literature on what generates the trust, as it were, and how one therefore might manage it. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really strange about trust is how paradoxical it can seem. So an example for me is I have all my files on Dropbox, um, all my personal files, all my, I don't want to say passwords, uh, because of course I don't quite put my passwords on Dropbox, but there's clues, there's clues from which you could reconstruct, or I can reconstruct my passwords, and they're sitting on files on Dropbox. And if you ask me, well, what do I know about Dropbox? What reason do I have to trust it? I could really tell you almost nothing. And, and actually, that's true with a lot of our digital activity. Yeah, do you even know where they're headquartered? I have no clue. I know absolutely nothing. So they could just delete all my files, walk off with them. How big a company? Do you know who owns them? No idea. So they've got all your stuff? Yeah, they've got all my stuff. I mean, what am I doing? This slightly makes me alarmed as I talk about it. And so there's something very odd that we can have trust where you would least expect it, really. Because you'd expect to be trusting you know, people in your own family. And Dropbox is the kind of extreme opposite of that. As you say, I embarrassingly don't know anything about them at all except they're just this thing which seems to hold my files and not lose them so far. So the thing you like about Dropbox, that it just has been reliable. Yeah. And also there's some kind of other people are doing it. Yeah, that's right. Yes, if it was just me, I would be alarmed. So there's some source of safety in numbers, yeah. There is a puzzle here, and, and, and one of the ways to get into this puzzle, so like, why is it that we... we, we try, I, mean, I have no trust in Dropboxes, the, the benevolence of the, you know, the loveliness of the people working for Dropbox, I don't think know nothing about them. I do think they're going to hold on to my files and not lose them. So I sort of trust them in one way, but if you say, so do I trust the individual employees or the, or the CEO or the people who own it? I, mean, I don't have any reason to trust them at all. So there's something sort of paradoxical here, and I think one way to understand that is to realise that really trust has different dimensions and at least three important and separable dimensions and this is something that we've both drawn from the academic literature also distilled ourselves at deck tech um, so our framework is an abc uh, convenient mnemonic uh, framework alignment benevolence and competence and these are really very fundamentally different aspects of trust an example of alignment is that here the issue is is it the case that the company and my interests are actually synced so here an example is airbnb um, so i'm going to take a, a, an apartment in some faraway city i know nothing about the person who's renting out this apartment but i do know that if they give me a bad experience i'm going to give them a bad rating and that's going to be really bad for them so they have a really strong incentive to give me a good experience 
And that's what makes the, the whole system system work, really. I can generally trust that bad actors on Airbnb won't last long. And I also know that Airbnb, again, whose property and um, charm I have no idea about. I couldn't tell you who, who owns them and how delightful or otherwise they are as people. But I do know that if they don't shut down poor uh, rental properties pretty fast, then they're in trouble. So there's an alignment issue there. That, that they have the incentive to produce good experiences for me and I want good experiences. So we're, we're kind of synced. But of course, that won't always be true. You alluded to that we'd done this work for various clients. Uh, I think the poster child for this work originally actually was Tesco. I mean, quite a while ago now, across the ABC framework, there were interesting examples of where people did or didn't trust them. And um, on the alignment front, the thing that was the one where they were trusted was, say, ranging. So to your point, I, I totally trust Tesco to put stuff on the shelves that I want to buy, because obviously... I want to buy stuff and they want to sell it to me. So everybody's all on the same page on that. But conversely, the trust levels, one of the lower trust levels within that domain was on pricing because clearly they want to charge me more and I want to pay less. Now, at some level, we're aligned on pricing a little bit because if they really put up, and you see people periodically run adverts like this. I think, in fact, even at the time, Tesco did run an advert saying, without you, we are toast, with obviously a picture of a piece of toast or something. And their point was, we have to give you good prices because we want you to come back. So that repeat purchase point is really crucial. But trust on ranging was higher than trust on, on pricing for obvious reasons. Yeah, and I think that brings us nicely to the second point, the B of benevolence. So the thing about alignment is that it doesn't matter if you're benevolent or not. If our interests are aligned, we're both going to work in a harmonious fashion. So you're going to give me products I want to buy and I'm going to buy them. Benevolence is what you need where that's not necessarily the case. So is it the case that I believe that the company will do the right thing irrespective of whether it's profitable for it to do so in the short term or even in the, in the long term? So an example of benevolence would be uh, learning that Patagonia gives a lot of its profits to environmental causes, for example. And indeed, we tend to have a high trust in, in pharmacies. And certainly our experience of going to pharmacies is on the whole, we have helpful pharmacists who are trying to give us the thing that we actually want to fix our problem. And of course, it may be that they're aligned in some sense that that's, you know, that's kind of good for their business. But really, that's not most of our experience, that mostly people are just trying to help us because they've gone into this profession to be benevolent, helpful people. You wouldn't go into it otherwise. Pharmacists are almost certainly offering five pounds in an ultimatum game, is your point. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You, you've got into the wrong job if you're trying to price gouge people and you're a pharmacist. Yes, it's, it's a caring profession in some sense. Yeah, the equivalent on the Tesco work back then was that no one trusted them, particularly in terms of their benevolence with how they would treat farmers. So in the case of farmers, there was, um, or indeed suppliers more generally, it was generally felt that, and I'm singling out Tesco because we did that work, but I mean, it was generally true across supermarkets, I think, that it was seen that they were doing things and making noise about ESG type things. There was a benevolence around having solar panels on the roofs of their shops and having lower drag, more fuel efficient lorries and this sort of thing. And they were talking about that from an ESG perspective because there wasn't necessarily a return on investment case for those things. It was more about doing the right thing because they felt that was what they ought to be doing. But on the other hand, when it came to looking after farmers, say, there was not really much altruistic behaviour. Yeah, and that brings us on to the other question of competence. So we have alignment. Are we synced in what we want? Benevolence, are you going to do the right thing, irrespective of whether it's in your best interests? But a separate 
point again is, are you actually competent to do that? Which, of course, Tesco were pretty trusted to actually put the products on the shelves, I guess. The example of competence that most strikes me is RBS. So that's my bank. I banked with RBS for many years. There was a period where RBS were in absolutely spectacular uh, meltdown. And all your passwords are on Dropbox is what I've learned today. It's all coming out now. So RBS were in a sort of spectacular meltdown, basically blew up horrendously financially, had to be bailed out by the government, public outrage about high salaries for people who'd taken enormous risks and then sort of um, r- run off as the as the house burnt down, as it were. So it was a tremendously bad publicity about the ethicality of RBS and its competence for that matter. But on the other hand, I had no worries at all through this entire period. Never really crossed my mind to worry that they were uh, going to be um, not hanging on to my money effectively or sneaking off with some of it or generally treating me badly because all my interactions with the bank just went on completely as normal. I, you know, the website was fine. My phone banking was fine. Everything's completely as before. Now, now, of course, there's no branches. That's certainly something I've noticed. But the basic functionality... I completely trusted it right the way through the whole system in other ways, otherwise just kind of breaking down horrendously. So senior management, not very benevolent, not very aligned with uh, the needs of customers. They were in the habit of making money through surreptitious fees and all the rest of it. But in terms of the core platform, was it going to add up? Could they do maths and keep a balance? Yes, they could do all that and transmit money without losing it and things like that. So in that sense, they were competent. As you say, everyone trusted Tesco in terms of their competence. There were things on the shelves and remain an extremely efficiently run operation with very high standards in terms of the execution side of the business. Perhaps one of the competence areas where we did get some sense of misgivings in the public was with personal data and how that personal data was being used. They made a lot of play of what they were doing with Dunhumby and Clubcard. And so... As a customer, you'd be perhaps a little nervous about whether that was going to get hacked or used in some other way, that there's going to be incompetence there in, in some way. That framework, the ABC framework, alignment, benevolent competence, I think is, yeah, they are very different ideas and they instantiate quite differently for an organization, but they all are associated with trust and in gaining trust. So I think if you were then to say, well, okay, we were listing earlier some of the places that people trust and don't trust. Why do people trust the supermarkets and so forth? And why do they not trust the insurers and the banks and so on? I think you can essentially take all the touch points that you have with an organization. You know, those touch points might be your actual interactions with the product or going in store or going into the branch or trying to execute something online, or what you're reading in the papers, or what people are saying to you by word of mouth. I mean, people are talking about these. But each one of those interactions, those touch points, you could score across this sort of type ABC. Were they demonstrating alignment? Uh, Do I think that they're on my side? Were they being benevolent? Were they exhibiting competence? And, you know, to your point, Nick, a lot of your interactions with RBS demonstrated competence, but then a lot of the other things, word of mouth newspaper, did not demonstrate alignment or indeed any form of benevolence. And so the accumulation of those touch points in the context of RBS or Tesco would be the thing that would then ultimately deliver you to the top or the bottom of that trust list and indeed would be the way in which you would keep or lose trust or earn trust or lose trust as a publicly facing brand. 
Yeah, and I think this point about touch points is so important, isn't it? And how separate the different dimensions are and the different types of touch points. So I might I might have extremely low confidence ratings for RBS, at least in its darker days, regarding its sort of overall financial management. I might think the whole business is totally out of control. It's overreaching disastrously, uh, making all kinds of cataclysmic financial decisions, losing literally billions and billions of pounds. So at one level, it's, there's a huge competence problem. But the touch points that I care about are you know, I, I'm just dealing with my finances with the website or the local branch or whatever. And those touch points are going to convince me that next time I use those touch points, it's all going to be fine. And that's the kind of stuff I probably care about most as a customer. I just care about the fact that the, the stuff, my, my day-to-day financial transactions are all, all kind of solid. So it's a very, very sort of differentiated thing. You've got the different types of trust and you've also got the different kinds of touch point. So another interesting example, of course, is the NHS where we have a general sense that the NHS is in crisis. And I think you know, there's very good reason to believe that's right. But most of us also have, in most of our daily interactions with the NHS, have a sense, strong sense of competence and everything's working pretty well. Not to say there isn't, aren't deep problems, but it's interesting how we have a sense of, well, locally, you know, the people I'm working with, the doctors I come across, etc., nurses are, are all very competent, motivated people, and they're trying to do the right thing. And the system is pretty amazing. But there's a general sense of, you know, globally, from sort of media reports and so on, that it's, it, things are in, in a bad way, right? which is, I think, right. You know, the difference between the local touch point and the touch point through, through the media, they can really diverge apart quite dramatically. Another point I think that's interesting is the importance of openness. So thinking about trust more abstractly, we need trust when we don't have knowledge, right? We don't know what somebody's alignment is. We don't know whether they're benevolent or not. We don't know whether they're competent or not. So we have to take it, as it were, on trust. And I think to try and build up trust as well as possible, the kind of watchword is to, where possible, be as open as possible. So if you want people to trust you, you want to just put stuff on the table. If you if you can be open, because people will be entirely happy with what you say and do, you may as well just be open. And even when you can't actually be open, for example, for privacy reasons, trying to act in such a way as were this open to public scrutiny, everyone would think this is totally fine. So if you're uh, a bank with some small business lending policies, say, and I won't pick any particular banks as, example, as examples here, but there were some extraordinary lending practices which were you know, pretty close to deliberately um, bankrupting certain small businesses but making a great deal of money out of them and doing so. And this, again, going back many years to the very dark days which we've, I think, moved beyond now. But those practices, were they visible, were they publicly clear and um, open at the time, would have excited absolute outrage and horror. Um, so they certainly weren't visible, they were hidden. So the very fact that you have to hide something is a kind of clue that you're doing something bad. And so I think for, for organisations to be trustable, just like for individuals, being as open as possible is good. Where you can't be open, behave as if you're under scrutiny. Because if you start to behave in a way that immediately thinking, well, just as well no one knows we're doing this, then you're kind of on a path to being, being distrusted. Well, this is uh, referred to as the Daily Mail test, is it not? Insofar as you are undertaking something in your organisation that you would not want on the front page of the Daily Mail, then you have to take a look at yourself and worry about the fact that you're undertaking that kind of thing. There is, of course, inevitably a quote around this. You could have a guess as to who it was, Nick. Uh, Trust but verify was the original quote. This was in the context of uh, nuclear armament and um, various treaties to reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the world. I'm going to take a wild stab here uh, and say, could it possibly have been Ronald Reagan? It was Ronald Reagan. But trust but verify is, I mean, that's really the the crux of it, isn't it? It's, you know, I'm going to start off by trusting you. But of course, if you're trying to hide something and you won't let me verify it, why would you do that? There can only be one reason why you would not do that. And so somewhere between the Gippers uh, trust but verify, uh, realpolitik, 
And um, would you want it on the front page of the Daily Mail, I think, is some insight into how you earn trust by showing people that you're aligned, showing people that you're benevolent, showing people that you are competent. Yeah, absolutely. And indeed, we have a, a whole publication just to do a quick Warwick Business School advert here. So Ed Gardner and I and various colleagues wrote a, a short piece, which I'm sure is up, up on the web somewhere, called Leading Integrity, which is really about, which is a kind of a summary of some uh, the meetings we had looking at what organisational integrity looks like. And it really does come down to this. I, mean, I didn't know the quote, but the trust but verify point. You want to earn trust by being open and people will be trying to verify. And if you're... Um, not happy to have something on the, page, the front page of the Daily Mail, or you're extremely cagey about quite saying what you're doing, then things are going awry, you should be behaving differently, and people won't trust you in quite rightly. So maybe we should, should wrap up. We've talked about trust, clearly a huge topic, of very great social and economic importance. Low-trust societies just don't function well on any level. But of course, trust has many components. In one, in one set of dimensions, it's the, it's the ABC components, so we've got alignment. Are, am I aligned with the person I'm trusting so that you know, our interests are kind of synced so that, that they've no reason to harm me? Are they benevolent? So even if they would benefit from harming me, they just wouldn't do it because they're on my side. And are they competent? Are, are they actually able to do a good job at all, irrespective of their uh, benevolence or their alignment? And so those three dimensions are very important to keep separate. And also there's this question of touch points being so important. Um, so the different touch points that I engage with an organisation on will be crucially shaping my trust in relation to similar touch points. So Dropbox, my only touch points are you know, sticking stuff on Dropbox, finding it's still there. Um, it's all going well. In that interaction, I'm gaining trust. But of course, in some other aspect of the way Dropbox works, you know, I may have absolutely no trust at all. So that's trust. So thanks very much for listening and see you next time on Predicting People. Thank you for listening. If you found the show interesting, please subscribe to the podcast. To find out more, you can find us at decktech.co.uk and you can follow us on LinkedIn, where we regularly post our latest research.